0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Our Bible reading today comes from John, Chapter Eleven, verses seventeen to forty four. and his face wrapped with cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Ah, Hi, if you haven't met me before, my name's Colin, the Associate Pastor here. So good to see you all on this lovely Sunday morning. And if you've been with us over the past two months, months, uh, we've been in the Gospel of John, uh, been specifically looking at the seven signs of Jesus, miracles from the person of Jesus uh, that have amazed, amused, and even angered people. And today is our last week in this series, and we close with the final sign from Jesus and perhaps the most remarkable one of the seven, because we have just heard in the Bible reading the events that follow have a man who actually dies. And after four days, he is raised to life by the power of Jesus. It's an amazing story, one that really shows the humanity of people, but also the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. But before we get into the miracle itself of a man raised to life, there's a lot that happens leading up to it. You know, As the beginning of chapter 11 begins, it gives us the context to this sign describing the family who will be heavily involved in this story. Martha, Sister Mary, and Brother Lazarus from Bethany, who were the same sisters from uh, earlier stories in the Gospels where Mary had anointed Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, all three who were very close friends with Jesus, very dear to him. And so as this story begins at the top of chapter 11, you may want to get your Bibles out because it's not in the booklet, uh, but at the top of chapter 11, we see that it's this Lazarus, this Lazarus, Lazarus, Who is extremely sick. And so naturally, being close friends with Jesus and uh, and their brother gravely ill, the sisters sent a messenger to find Jesus to tell them that Lazarus, whom Jesus cares deeply for, is very unwell. But what's strange from this story is that right from the get-go, upon hearing the news, the response we get from Jesus is one that is honestly quite unexpected. Because what it says in verse six of chapter 11 is that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now imagine that you're in a life or death situation and you reach out to a close friend and you know, a friend that you know deeply cares for you and, and, and loves you. And imagine that friend hears this and has no urgency whatsoever, but instead delays. Coming to your aid. Like it just doesn't make sense, does it? Like even a stranger in most cases would come urgently to the aid of somebody who may be in a life or death situation, maybe dying. What, what would you expect? What would more would you expect from somebody who is a close friend? And to add to that, not only a regular close friend, but the Jesus Christ who the sisters believed had the power of God who could work a miracle. Because both sisters separately, Mary and Martha, when meeting Jesus four days later in the narrative, uttered these words to him as soon as they saw him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So it tells us that both sisters believed that Jesus could have saved their brother, Lazarus, from death if he was there. But he wasn't. Now what a peculiar thing for Jesus to do. See, so we've seen him throughout this series with the other signs that we've gone through, shown signs of, of great compassion. You know, we've seen him heal a pal- paralytic that he didn't even know purely out of his grace. We've seen him provide for over 5,000 people who are all mostly strangers. And yet here with close friends, Jesus wasn't even present. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem right. But looking at the passage, this was no mistake, but was completely intentional from Jesus. See, after receiving the news about Lazarus, it says in verse 5 to 6 in chapter 11, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the one word that stands out most here in those two verses that I just read is that word so that connects the two verses. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Because Jesus loved these three so much, he delayed his arrival to them. His actions were not one out of forgetfulness, ignorance, or spite, but Jesus delayed out of his love. See, what Jesus does here show us in my first point is that we have a God who delays for our good. Now, why would it be good for us to be made to wait for things? Think for Mary and Martha. They're made to wait for Jesus in a situation that costs a life. How could that be seen as a good thing? How is that loving that God would do that to them, let alone do that to us? So I've recently watched a game show based off of the hit, you may have heard the hit Netflix show uh, series, uh, Squid Game. Right? And it's in in, in this, uh, it is it is a series of games basically where contestants must win to proceed to the next round where uh, otherwise you'll be eliminated. And it goes like 450 or so people that eventually eliminate and there's only one winner. And I remember one of the contestants when being interviewed would often say the line, I want to be in control of my destiny. Like, she kept saying that. But the thing is, almost every single one of those games that she was in, that she participated in, was based on chance. Like, she could have been just as easily eliminated by simply picking the wrong ball with the wrong number and she'd be out. She really didn't have much or any control at all in that game show whatsoever. And yet she kept kept saying in the interview, I want to be in control of my destiny. See, we've all been through it in some capacity haven't we, where we've been made to wait for something and the longer we wait the more the reality dawns on us that we really don't have much control, that we really don't have control over our own destiny. Perhaps we've been waiting for a job to get back to us, maybe we've been waiting anxiously every day for our kids just to make it home, maybe we're waiting for the result of a health scan. And so what waiting does for all people is it really humbles us. We see that in times of great waiting, times where it can be frustrating, times where it can even be excruciating, we're reminded that we we aren't in control. So we have to trust in the one who is. You know, Proverbs 19 verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. See, often when God delays things for us, It means we're left with a choice, a choice to either put our trust in Him or put our trust in something else. Because when we're made to wait, most of the time what we want most is answers. But waiting on God means going without answers, maybe to your prayers, to your requests, to your desires. So when we're without answers, when our present or near future is still so unknown, When things are out of our control, all we can do is trust. But it's a matter of what we trust in, which makes all the difference. See, because the world will tell us to, you know, trust in ourselves. But as I've already noted, you know, we simply don't have enough control to trust in ourselves. We can't get the answers we want whenever we want. For others, we're told to trust in the world. You know, that every answer is right there in front of you. You just need to choose it. You just need to grab it. Take control of your life. Go get it. But that can't be true because you look all around us and everybody is still made to wait for something. But for the Christian, we're not told to trust in any of these things, but to trust in only one thing, which is our God. know Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all our heart and do not lean on your own understanding." And while in the moment we may not think so, this is actually a good thing because we all know that trusting in ourselves or the world just doesn't seem very solid, you know, and they're not solid because they're all flawed or untrustworthy in some sense. But when our desires are delayed, our hope is deferred, we can trust in a God who isn't flawed or untrustworthy, but a God who is sovereign over everything. The God who created the heavens and the earth, who has control over all things. The God who is in fact good. You know, Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so when we're waiting on God, we're left to rely on him, trust in that he is at work in it all, even if there is a delay. Remembering his sovereignty that as R.C. Sproul says, pastor and author, God's timing is not our timing and his timing is always perfect. It means we're trusting in a God who is good, who's paving our way for our good. This is all quite humbling again, isn't it? Because it forces us to take a step back and kind of look at a bigger picture. You see, oftentimes when we're waiting for something, an answer that is really important, that answer we're waiting for feels like it's the biggest thing in our entire life. Like it's it's all we think about. And so when it's delayed, we can begin to feel like maybe God has forgotten us. Or maybe God hasn't heard us. And I think Mary and Martha would have felt that. But at the time, they couldn't see that in Jesus' delaying his arrival. He was actually doing it for their own good. He loved them so much that he wanted them to wait. Wanted this for them because in their waiting, it meant that they needed to trust in God all the more. They needed to rely on God and look at the bigger picture. See, because in all the waiting and delays in our lives, God isn't telling you that he's forgotten you. He's not saying that he hasn't heard your pleas In fact, the Bible tells us that he knows your thoughts even before you think them. But God, in delaying his answers to your prayers, is often a call for you to go to him. In other words, God delays in order that our love and faith in him are strengthened. He delays for our own good. See, there was somebody in my gospel community who experienced this herself, you know, where For a long and arduous year, she had a temporary boss who came in to cover paternity leave. But this boss caused a lot of trouble to all the staff, being extremely unprofessional and just making life hard for our GC member and her colleagues. And I remember almost every week at Gospel Community, her prayer request was about her boss. She would question why God was putting her through this. Like, God, how long do I have to wait until this ends? Asked for prayer from the gospel community that she would be patient and grow in faithfulness and trying not to get too angry when thinking about it. It was an extremely hard year for her. And anyone can imagine how hard it would be if your boss, who you work and you see almost every day of the week, makes your life a living hell every day. But she would always pray to grow in faith in the Lord every time she was there at gospel community even specifically praying that she hopes that one day when she sees that same person in the corridor, she would be able to say hi without feeling any hate, hurt or resentment. And after the year had passed, God did indeed do an amazing work in her. See, fast forward a year later when they bumped into each other after that temporary boss had left. They had a genuine conversation. There were no feelings of resentment or frustration, but God had transformed the heart as she could stand there and say that, I've forgiven you. And see, perhaps you've experienced this yourself where you've been waiting so long for an answer to prayer and found yourself drawing closer to God as you're made to wait Strengthened in faith because in your waiting, you've, you've had to be praying to him even more. You know, growing in love because in your waiting, it had you spending more time with him, hearing from his word, walking in obedience because in your waiting, it had you being more patient and reliant on God. It's as author John Calvin says, we are taught by this delay on his part that we ought not to judge of the love of God from the condition which we see before our eyes. When we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance, either that he may increase still more ardour in prayer or that he may exercise our patience and at the same time accustom us to obedience. Martha was a prime example of this because notice in verse 23 to 27, Jesus tells Martha that her brother will rise again, to which Martha replies, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, kind of saying, I know, Lord, of course, he's going to eventually be raised, but what about the present? I'm hurting right now. But then importantly, in verse 27, Martha further confesses this to Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Martha, in a waiting and delayed answer, From Jesus was strengthened in her faith. She needed to rely on God, needed to trust in him, even though her close friend Jesus, day after day, was nowhere to be seen. Likely praying rigorously, fervently, likely going to God's word, the sisters, and her faith was strengthened, seeing more clearly who Jesus was and trusting in him. Even with her brother lying in a tomb, she was still faithful to the Lord. Confessing her belief in Jesus as Lord. It's as her author, Arkent Hughes says, she had been tested with grief and loss and she had allowed her saviour to bring her forth as gold refined in the fire. See, it would have been a trialling time for Martha. But in her trials, in waiting for God, her faith and love never waned but from her response to Jesus, it actually strengthened. And yet while she remained faithful, trusting in the Lord, the reality for both sisters was that their brother had died and it was one of the greatest pains that they could feel. That even when God delays answers, sometimes the answer we get isn't the one we want and the one we do get is extremely painful. And anyone who has experienced the death of a loved one can empathize here with Mary and Martha's pain. You know, as one writer describes it, death, it leaves an indelible etching on the soul, like a wrinkle carved in an old man's face, feeling like it never fully heals. It would have been soul wrenching for these sisters. It would be totally understandable if they were angry at Jesus who wasn't there to prevent this. But in their pain and anguish, what we see from Jesus reflects the character of God. That, as we continue reading, we'll see we have a God who enters into our sorrows. So, what's the one movie that always gets you? You know, the one that always makes you cry. See, for mine, it is uh, The Lion King. Yeah, where I've seen it many, many times. It was a childhood movie, obviously, and the part where, obviously, Mufasa—spoiler alert—he dies. Uh, and it's, it's just one of the most gut wrenching scenes. He's falling off the cliff. He dies, but then you can, I can hear, if you watch it, you can hear the soundtrack playing and you can hear Simba crying out like, help anyone, somebody, help. And then he goes and he lies with his dad and gets his arm wrapped around him. You know, how can a pen and a pencil drawing lines make somebody weep like that? I don't know, right? But it's just such a good movie. It gets me every time I cry. But the funny thing is, we all have movies like that. The funny thing is when we think about it, we all have seen these movies multiple times and yet they can still make us cry, right? We know what's going to happen and yet we feel it. See, when Jesus received the message that Lazarus was ill, as the son of God, he already knew what he was going to do, that he was going to raise Lazarus. Because in verse 4 of chapter 11, we see Jesus say this, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So this death came as no surprise to Jesus. And it wouldn't have deterred Jesus as he knew Lazarus would eventually live. But even then, even though Jesus knew that physical death wouldn't take a hold over Lazarus, notice Jesus when he meets Mary. See in verse 32, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Even though Jesus knew how the story would go, he knew the ending of this little narrative. And it was a good ending. That Lazarus would live. He was still moved seeing Mary's sorrow for her dead brother. Jesus wept with her. And I think this is one of the most powerful passages in the entire Bible, because here we have the Son of God feeling the pain of another person. We see a God who enters into our sorrow, Jesus truly felt the pain of loss that Mary was feeling and it grieved him. It says that Jesus was deeply moved, which in its original Greek language literally translates to a horse snorting like a massive involuntary gasp, almost like the wind had been taken out of him. See, Jesus truly felt the pain, anguish and sorrow of Mary and Martha with everything that he had. Jesus felt this even though he knew that it would all end well. But it shows us what kind of God we have, that he would literally feel the grief of those who he loved, which is quite astonishing because for a lot of people, when we think of gods or divine beings, we naturally picture something like an all-powerful, mighty, authoritative, stern-like man sitting on like a, a golden throne in the clouds, right? You, you think of the, the Greek mythology type of looks like Zeus or Hercules, stoic, unyielding, serious. Or for other religions perhaps, the gods they worship are often depicted as ones who are distant, above humans, so so not emotional, not vulnerable, not seen as weak. And even for Christians, sometimes when we think, when we think of God, We're tempted to picture him as this, you know, stereotypical Old Testament God description, you know, only wrathful, only judging, angry, above it all. But what's so stirring about this passage is we clearly see a God who isn't distant by any means, but quite the opposite. A God who isn't steely without feelings or aloof, but a God who shares in our sorrows and draws near to us in the pain. It says author R. Kent Hughes says, Jesus enters the sorrow that he could have prevented in such a way that he gasps, his whole body shudders, and he begins to weep. That is the perspective Christ wants us to have. If you are hurting, he wants you to know that he weeps with you. Jesus is not a stoic, impassable God. So these are one of those passages in the Bible where we get to really see the humanity of Jesus, that he really did enter into the brokenness of this world and lived and experienced the things that we do so we can confidently say that the Son of God understands all our temptations and grief. know, as Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was truly God and man able to sympathize with our weaknesses yet without sin. Jesus saw the pain caused by loss and death and grieved with his beloved friends. He mourned along with them but perhaps most striking for me from this series of events is what Jesus doesn't do. Because when Jesus gets there, both Mary and Martha are coming to him with words, almost like a reproof, like, Jesus, had you been here, everything would be okay. Like, where were you, Jesus? Why did it take you so so long? Why weren't you here for my brother? And notice in all their interactions, Jesus doesn't rebuke or reprove the sisters. Jesus could have told them, my ways are above yours, or why do you question the Son of God? But he doesn't. He simply enters their sorrow and feels their grief, feels their pain. He listens. He empathizes. He cares. And there's something quite meaningful there for us in how Jesus responds, isn't there? So have you ever felt something similar to Mary or Martha where you're hurting over a loss of some sort maybe you've felt the same way and you did or, or want to respond with where were you lord you got here too late no lord where were you when my parents divorced lord where were you when i didn't get that job lord where were you when i had to give up my house lord where were you when my marriage dissolved lord where were you when i lost My loved one. See, when we feel this and cry out to God, He hears us. And it's not sinful to tell God how you feel. Now, of course, we should be doing this in a faithful way, you know, reverent towards God, remembering that we bow to an Almighty God. So it's not venting uncontrollably at Him. But that doesn't mean we aren't allowed to express to God the way we feel. In Scripture, we see many faithful people of God cry out to him, lamenting, hurting and disillusioned, asking questions to God. So as author Archant Hughes says, some of us have feelings that ought to be shared with God. The feelings are not necessarily right, but they are feelings that need to be brought honestly before God. See, seeing how Jesus responded to Mary and Martha, It helps remind us that God is more patient and accepting than we realize. Not only that, but God already knows our thoughts, so we couldn't hide them from him even if we wanted to. But the Bible has no shortage of faithful people weeping and hurting in the deepest valleys. And yet Jesus reminds us that God sees, sees it all. He sees you in your hurt. See, Matthew 10 verse 29 says, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's notice, and neither do any of your tears. See, Psalm 6 showed, when David cried out to the point of becoming weary, God never became weary of listening to him. In Genesis 21, when Hagar cried out in the wilderness of, of Beersheba, God drew near to her. In 1 Sam, Samuel 1, when Hannah was outside in the temple of the Lord weeping, God noticed and remembered. It's as Dane Ortland, author, says in his uh, well-known book, Gentle, Gentle and Lowly, he says, in our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. So just as our God has said to King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. When we are made to wait and we get the answers we don't want, when we experience great loss, Jesus sees your hurt and he wants you to bring it to him. Because he doesn't only see your anguish, but he understands it. He cares for you. See, Jesus cared for Mary and Martha. You could see the compassion he had for them as he would be sorrowful and deeply moved upon seeing their sadness. And this isn't the first we read of God's compassion he has for his people. You know, In Psalm 147, it says that God draws near to the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In Luke 6, Jesus said, blessed are those who weep now. See, when Jesus joined a crowd outside the town of Nain and watched a widow weep over her son's body, in Luke 7, it says Jesus said, he had compassion on her. Jesus, the Son of God, has compassion over you. He cares for you. He loves you. And he doesn't take a shortcut through your grief. But just as he did with Mary and Martha, Jesus lingers with you in your sorrow. He understands and feels what you feel in your deepest valleys and walks alongside you. You know, Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But even amidst it all, it can be really hard to feel, to feel that, can't it? It can be hard to believe it if we don't have the physical Jesus present like Mary and Martha did. But just like when God delays something for us, it's in these moments that God wants us to draw nearer to Him so that we feel His presence. See, we can cry out to Him vulnerably and honestly, but He wants us to come to Him so that He can reassure us. Reassure us that He cares. Reassure us that He understands what we're going through. Reassure us that we can trust Him. Because while we may not get the physical presence of Jesus with us, like Mary or Martha today, you know in the Bible, Jesus actually promised us something better. He's actually promised us his spirit. That to those who believe in him, he actually lives in us. And so when we come to him, bringing our pains, our frustrations, our waiting, we can be reassured that he is with us and is doing a continuing work in us. So that means that in going to him in these times of hard hardship or waiting, that in going to him, he can help us. He can help us in our patience. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. That in going to him, he can be the one who gives you peace. Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. That in going to him, he reminds us, of his promises, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he he who is promised is faithful. See, the reality is for us is that it can be hard to imagine Jesus walking with us when we're right, smack bang in the middle of the hardest times in our lives. Because oftentimes when we experience great loss, it leaves us wondering, you know, we don't fully understand. We ask, Lord, Lord, why did you take this away? But by drawing to the God who draws near to you when you're brokenhearted, he wants you to see him clearer. He wants you to trust him even more. He wants you to remember who he is and what he's done and what he's promised. See, Mary and Martha had no idea that their waiting and ultimately worse news was for their good. See, the pain they felt at the time, they would have thought, how could this be good? Jesus loved them so much as to let it happen. Because as Jesus has said earlier, but Jesus loved them so much as to let it happen. Apologies. Because as Jesus had said earlier, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, Jesus delayed and let a good friend die because through it, it was going to show his glory that Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples, all the witnesses that were there would all be strengthened in love and faith of God by seeing more clearer who Jesus was. See, as Mary and Martha wept for a lost brother, Jesus would go to the tomb, ask them, to move the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and prayed to the Father and cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he indeed did that, being raised to life by Jesus. See, a truly remarkable miracle. None seen before that a man who had certainly been dead for four days was raised by Jesus. A sign that showed the absolute power that Jesus had over life and death that he was surely the Son of God. See, the raising of Lazarus was such an extraordinary sign from Jesus, and yet the sign itself wasn't what Jesus wanted Mary, Martha, the witnesses to appreciate the most, which is crazy because a man was physically raised from death to life, and yet Jesus wanted the sisters to see beyond that, to see something more, and Jesus wants us to as well. Because while Mary and Martha got their brother back, most of the time, for many of us who have experienced great loss of some sort, the reality is we won't get the same ending as Mary and Martha. But just like the sisters, Jesus wants us to see beyond that, to see something more. Because death is hard. It's something we rarely think about. Let alone talk about. It's something that we often prefer to speak about in like euphemisms, you know, to shield us from its ugliness. It's often met with pain, grief, emptiness, devastation, loss. Death creates a void in our lives. It feels like something that is intruding in the world, something that doesn't belong, that it's not natural. That we grieve at a loss of a loved one because with death, it feels like something is wrong. See, earlier this year, my uncle, whom I'm quite close with, as he was the only male figure in my life who, who I grew up with, uh, went through some severe depression. And it was a really tough time for our family. As he became somebody that I've, in all my, my life, I've never seen him like this before, completely became somebody else, else. He really, really spiraled. Even talked to me personally about having suicidal thoughts. And I remember one night I messaged him, messaged him to check if he was Okay. And I got no response, which was quite uncharacteristic of him. I remember calling him like 10, 15, 20 times and nothing. So I called my mum and she said that she hadn't heard from him all day. So Lena and I started to panic, you know, and I, so I immediately drove, drove to his place. This was late at night. I immediately drove to his place, which is a far drive from Tarney, because he, he lives in Richmond. But I remember on that drive feeling a deep sense of dread, a you know, fear. Of what I'd find in his apartment, that he'd no longer be here, and I remember weeping on the drive, crying out to God, like, "Lord, please, like, please let him, call, like, let him call back, Lord, please have him message me back, Lord, please keep him alive." And I can clearly remember that night, that that drive on the Westgate Bridge. It's a long drive, and the anxiety and the pain, but also the the, the anger and frustration at the thought of death, you know, and and Jesus felt this deeply. But even more, as he saw the anguish of a sister from a loss of her brother, that Jesus even wept himself to the point that it says in verse 33 that he was greatly troubled, translated in the Greek to, to have an inward agitation. See, Jesus was frustrated was angry, but why, when he knew what he was going to do in raising Lazarus? It's because Jesus agrees that death isn't natural. It is something intruding in our lives, something that doesn't belong. It's as author Anthony Salvaggio says, you know, Jesus was filled with anger because he was standing in the presence of the great enemy, death. See when Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, you know John Calvin describes it as like he was like a wrestler preparing for a contest. You know Jesus was outraged by the presence of death, and he was preparing himself to combat it—a battle that was one-sided. As Jesus shows the power of God in raising Lazarus, yeah, but death is still present. You know we look all around us and see that. You know both in the world and personally in our own lives, the brokenness and hurt from this intrusive enemy, continues. But when Martha, in the peak of her pain, met Jesus, telling him that she wished that he was there earlier, Jesus told her this in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, amidst the pain, the anguish, the hurt, the frustration of death, Jesus, God himself, promises something better because this enemy death is something that reigns over everyone. Death is inevitable for all of us, for all people, because it is a consequence of sin. See, in Genesis, when the first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned, breaking that once perfect relationship that they had with their creator God, death became the master of all born of Adam. It's as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, that death is part of the wages of sin. It is God's enemy introduced because we made ourselves God's enemies. Death that wasn't only physical, but spiritual that all of us born after Adam are dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans 3.23, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That for all of us, if left to ourselves, death would reign over us. But we weren't left to ourselves. For from the words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life that whoever believes in me will live. See, the raising of Lazarus was only a prelude to what Jesus would eventually do over death. See, while this seventh sign from Jesus was one off if not his greatest sign, it pales in comparison to Jesus' victory on the cross over death. Because this raising of Lazarus pointed forward to Jesus' own death and resurrection. Jesus didn't only enter into our sorrow and feel our anguish from the brokenness of the world, but Jesus became the man of sorrows who took on the consequences of our sin and our brokenness. See, whereupon raising Lazarus, Jesus' enemies found out and without delay plotted to kill him eventually crucifying him on the cross. And yet a few hours, remember this, a few hours before Jesus was betrayed, before he was tried, before he was beaten, before he was crucified, only a few hours before that, in John 16, Jesus says this to his disciples. He tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus promised something better, promises the sorrow and the sighing to be gone, where tears will dry up and grief will lose its grip. In all the waiting, in all the heartache, in all the hurt of loss you have or may be experiencing, God promises that for every tear you shed, it is preparing you for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4. And it may seem so hard amidst the sorrow, seem impossible right now. Like, how can this heartache, this grief, ever give way to joy? And it's okay that we don't understand the how right now. God's ways are above ours to ever grasp. But he wants you to believe and have hope in his promises. And perhaps one of his most loving promises that we can see in the Bible from Revelation 21, that one day when he returns again, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So going back to the story of my uncle, in the anxiety, and anguish of that drive, and crying out, weeping to God. The thought of my uncle no longer being here really pained me. But what hurt the most in that, why I was most upset, was the fact that he doesn't know Jesus, that he didn't know the resurrection and the life. See, by God's grace, he's still here with us. And I pray fervently that he'll one day meet Jesus and and respond to him just as Martha did. you know. That he'll one day hear Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, for me, it was almost like God raised him from the dead that night, giving my family hope that he'll one day give his life to Christ. And that's the thing about Jesus being the resurrection and the life because of what he's done and what Jesus offers, death or loss of any kind is no longer seen as the definite end. We can grieve in our losses and we should, but for those in Jesus, we are able to see beyond it because we can look beyond it because of Jesus's victory. And so one day we can look back at all our waiting, at all our crying, all our mourning, all our pain, and with our weary voices turn to shouts of praise and cry out the psalm, you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are the giver, the author, the sustainer of life, the resurrection and the life. And we praise you for being a God who is in control of all things, even the most minute details in our lives. And we thank you that you are altogether good, and so we can trust that you work for our good, even when we don't see it. Help us to trust in you in times of waiting, to draw nearer to you, to rely on you that we may see more of your goodness, And, Lord, we know in your will there will be plenty of times where what we desire is not your plan. Uh, What we desire is not your plan. So help us to further trust in you in times of hardship, in times of anguish, in times of pain, in times of loss. We thank you that you are not distant from us, but you draw near to us when we are brokenhearted, feeling what we feel and hurting as we hurt. Help us to remain especially faithful in these hardest of times, knowing that you hear us, you understand us, you know us, you care for us, you love us. And we see that love so clearly by what you've done on the cross. May you keep our hearts fixed on your future promises. There is something better to come. All made a reality by the gracious work of Christ. And we'll pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast.